Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Breakpoint Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Ryan Bamford was named as the UMass Athletic Director in March of 2015. Now, he has since re-energized the entire athletics program at UMass. Known as one of the up-and-coming members of the athletic department industry, Bamford is young, passionate, and experienced. Before leading the Minutemen, he was a Senior Associate Athletic Director at Georgia Tech, and prior to that, He spent eight years at Yale, the last five as Senior Associate Director of Athletics. My relationship with Ryan Bamford goes back to his days as an undergrad at Ithaca College, where he was an outstanding basketball player, and I happened to live in the dorm room next to his. I won't get into too many embarrassing experiences, but uh, Ryan Bamford, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. I'm so excited to talk to you because it's been so long and um, you've got so much going on in your life. Your father was a longtime athletic director at Plymouth State in New Hampshire. And, and I know that that being an athletic director was something that, that was always important to you at a young age. And we'll get to that. But I always like to start the podcast. First question, what is your earliest childhood basketball memory? Um. I think going to uh, my dad used to play kind of strangely. My dad used to play um, in a men's league uh, pickup league on Sunday mornings. And early uh, on, I had to go to church. And then my dad said to my mom, listen, I think we should give him the option to either come and be with me or go to church. And I, I, I bet you can imagine what uh, my decision was. Um, I think that was probably my earliest memory is watching him play. And he was a great college basketball player. So, uh, watching him and his buddies get together on Sundays and play, and I always kind of shot in the corner, and probably my earliest memory. It's pretty crazy. The shooting in the corner uh, helped you out later, later in life as you as you moved along. So you became an outstanding high school basketball player in New Hampshire, and then went on to, to Ithaca College, where, as I just mentioned, you had a really great career. Um, you know, playing for the Bombers back in the day as a, as a guy that could really shoot it from deep. During that stretch, how much was your mind focused on what you were going to be doing once you once you graduated? Uh, well, I was fortunate. My dad being in, in college athletics um, when I was growing up, he became an uh, AD at the, the college level when I was 10. So I, I had the opportunity to just grow um, up in that environment, be around young people, be around college-age kids, um, watch all the different sports they had at Plymouth State. And about my freshman or sophomore year in high school, um, I just saw how much my dad loved being around young people and trying to help shape their lives and give them the opportunity to be successful. And, um, and that, for me, was um, just reinforced what I wanted to do and uh, he was a great role model and had the opportunity to, um, 
even in high school, kind of do some internships around high school and college athletics. And I just liked the the fact that even after, uh, you know, maybe my playing career was over, I'd have a chance to still be part of uh, a program and part of an organization um, to try to drive success. And I didn't know if I wanted to coach or be an administrator, but um, but my freshman or sophomore year in, in high school is when I kind of realized, you know, I, th- I think I want to do this as a as a career and in my life and um, and just kind of built it from there. And that's, that kind of led me to actually led me to Ithaca because of the sport management program um, as I was you know becoming a junior and senior in high school. So how do you go from then Ithaca college to one of the finest academic institutions in the country in Yale and as a senior uh, director of athletics eventually, but just in their athletic department in general, how does that happen? Yeah, well, for me, I'm, I'll be honest with you, everything, and this is probably not unique to college athletics, everything in this business especially is about timing. And um, I actually left Ithaca, went to Springfield College, got my master's degree uh, at the birthplace of basketball there at Springfield and um, had a great two-year run as a GA there and had the opportunity to go to Yale as an intern, a very entry-level position in varsity sports operations and really kind of learned from a couple people in that organization that helped me grow. And even after a year, um, I was able to get promoted and, and uh, become an assistant AD and, and kind of went from there and just really learned. Uh, I was very, very lucky because at 23, 24, when I got to Yale, um, Yale's obviously a renowned um, world-class uh, institution. And that athletics program is broad-based, 35 programs, uh, 950 student-athletes. So I got a taste of a little bit of everything being in that athletics department for eight plus years. And it really built a great foundation for me um, to have, I think, some success and to be able to move um, into some other organizations, you know, a little bit later in my career. Um, But it it was timing. uh, The fact that I I got the opportunity to get my foot in the door and then just take, try to take advantage of of the opportunity once it presented itself. I know working at an Ivy league school, in general, from a coaching perspective, you face a ton of challenges just because of the type of student athlete that you're able to recruit and how difficult that is. What about from the athletic department side? How, what are the challenges of working you know, in the athletic department and uh, trying to help out those athletic programs, most notably basketball? Uh, what, what are the challenges there? Well, I think when you're at a place like Yale, and I, I got there just after they had had their tercentennial 300-year celebration, and when you're at a place that's been around, that's established, um, it's been the Ivy, the Ivy League had been uh, around for 50-plus years. Um, the athletic department had been around for 130 years at the time. Um, and, you know, we weren't doing a ton of new things, and so I think trying to break the mold and trying to get people on campus to understand how important having a vibrant athletics department is and, and specifically a program like men's basketball. And, and, you know, I'm really proud of, uh, in, in following, uh, I oversaw men's basketball when I was at Yale and working close with James Jones and seeing the success they had this year and going and beating Baylor in the first round and giving Duke a run in the second round of the NCAA tournament is the first time they'd been to the tournament since the, I think the mid sixties and what that did for that campus trying to explain that to admissions or financial aid or the provost or the dean of students, trying to explain how that can really um, engage a community uh, on campus in, in a run like that. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to do when you haven't done it in a, in a number of years and to try to explain that to people. But after they made their run, I kind of checked in with some of those folks that I had worked with and they saw it. They saw it firsthand and I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges is trying to get the campus community to look at athletics as a co-curricular endeavor, as something that is part of the educational experience for the 950 student athletes in that department, specifically the you know 15 that are on the men's bat in the men's basketball program. And um, men's basketball at the Ivy level is a good brand of basketball. It's it's a good RPI league. It's uh, competitive. You know, Princeton, Harvard. And, and Yale, the last number of years, have been uh, all done well in the postseason. Obviously, Harvard's made some good runs in the NCAA tournament. So I think it's a, it's a respected league, and it's one where you, if you can compete in the top two or three, 
you're going to have a chance to be in some national tournaments, maybe the NCAAs for the champion, and then you know the the uh, the NIT or CIT or some of those other ones, and and really kind of brand your program uh, moving forward. And and I think that's that's the evolution of where we've come from. When I got there, Penn and Princeton had won I think 52 of the 50 last 54 championships when I got there in like the early 2000s. And it's completely changed. The the league has now really changed. And I think institutions are paying attention to it in the league. And now you're seeing schools like Harvard and Yale that hadn't won in a number of years have have now won, uh, um, you know, pretty regularly over the last, you know, six, six to eight years. That's interesting you bring that up. I know when we saw the dominance of Princeton, you know, playing in the NCAA tournament and everyone tuning in to see, you know, that Princeton offense with Pete Carrill and, you know, those famous games against UCLA and against Georgetown. And then Penn had yep. their run when one of the best teams probably in the country, the Jerome Allen and uh, Matt Maloney and, uh, and, and those guys. Uh, since we sort of saw an Ivy League shift and, and Harvard now playing really well, not just in the league, but nationally, as you bring up, and then Yale as well, there's been a lot of talk in basketball circles about changing academic standards for, you know, the basketball players that, that have come in. Um, how much truth is there to, to that shift as well in terms of, you know, these changing academic standards? Well, it's interesting because the Ivy League's got what's called an academic index, and they, these, the athletic programs have to be one standard deviation without getting too far into statistics, but one standard deviation away from what the institutional mean is. So what the incoming class academic index average is based on your SAT, ACT scores, and your GPA. And so athletics, the athletics cohort as a whole has to be within one standard deviation. But within that, you can have sports, um, you know, really all over the spectrum. And, and what I think a lot of Ivies have done there's in football, there's these, what they call bands, there's four bands and you can only take so many kids in each band so that you meet your, your average. And in basketball and hockey and some of the other ones, lacrosse, um, you know, schools are deciding where they want to try to, you know, position their academic index in those sports. So, you know, some schools may have a higher AI average than others. And I think what Harvard and Yale and some of these others have done is they're not, they're not necessarily, saying, well, we're going to go right to the bottom, to the floor of the AI to try to win, I think they're trying to balance themselves out and take a mix of, of lower academic index kids and some higher kids and get to a point where they can still be competitive within their athletic population. And um, it, it's, just a, it's just a really a little bit of a philosophical change, and it's by institution. And you know, I think that was one of the things that when I was there, we were trying to have the admissions people understand that in basketball, unlike some of the other sports, one or two kids can impact a program. And so if you take a, a little bit lower kid, and when I say a little bit lower on the academic index, Adam, it's still a remarkable um, right, young right. man or woman you're bringing into the program. You know, you're bringing in kids that are 12 or 1300 on the SATs and, and, you know, three, you know, three, seven, five to four oh students. So it's not like you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're scraping for the dregs. They're highly talented and motivated academically. So, you know, but to get, when you look at that against what the institution's bringing in for admissions, um, it doesn't always stack up, you know, favorably. So getting admissions to understand that one or two kids, if you just took one kid every year, over four years, you're going to have four really good program kid building kids, impact difference makers. And, uh, and that's huge. And so I think that's when Harvard kind of flipped the switch. They were able to do that. That's why they're able to get even, even now, you know, top 30 or top 50 recruiting classes because they can take a couple of kids that are meeting the academic index floor, are highly motivated uh, students, but are great basketball players. And, um, and that's what James Jones and Yale have been able to do. And, and, I, and I think, you know, Penn and Princeton have done well with it in the past as well. Yeah, that's all extremely interesting. I mean, kids all smarter than uh, you or I, Ryan. I think we can point that out uh, pretty fairly, but or at least myself. Uh, but what's really fascinating about that, my brother actually um, was a coach for a short while. He was a grad assistant at Charlotte and then actually went to 
Franklin and Marshall. And Franklin and Marshall was a D3 school, but had incredibly high academic standards. And while he was an assistant there, did a lot of the recruiting and ran into a lot of the same issues. They were actually looking for kids that maybe were two inches too short to play power forward at the Ivy League level or a little bit too slow to play on the perimeter at the Ivy League level. But they were looking for those types of kids. And I remember him always talking about what a battle it was, you know, between the coaching staff and the admissions department and and with some of those same statistics that, that you just bring up. Um, I'm curious, though, because we always hear that side of it now, not as in-depth as you just explained, and I appreciate that explanation. But what about the other side? How about when the kids do come in? What are some of the success stories about these kids that might have been on the lower end of the AI scale? All of a sudden, they get put in a, in a position to really grow, not just as athletes, but as students as well. They're now at the Yales and Harvards of the world. How can you speak to that? Yeah, it, it, you know, I think that those are the those are the things and that's how you that's how you can qualify a lot of the things you talk about with the admissions folks is when we brought kids in that um, they may have looked at and said, hey, you know, this I just don't know if this person's going to be highly successful. We made sure that they were. And when they 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 had success academically and and in the community and, and in the ways that they enriched the campus community as a whole we pointed to those successes so that we could build some equity with the admission staff and say, remember so-and-so, how well they've done. And that's a success. This kid's just like that kid. This kid's going to do well. And I'm going to tell you, there are kids that I still remain close with that played football or basketball at Yale. There were two sports that I oversaw. And, and there are kids that have gone on. There are kids that really we had to fight to get into school. There are kids that have gone on to now be managing directors of hedge funds, They've gone on to be uh, really talented political operatives. Uh, they've gone on to nonprofit work, to lawyers, to be doctors. So, you know, when you look at those things over the course of time, and a lot of them, a lot of those kids appreciate how much that education did for them. They're some of your best donors down the line. They're giving, they're giving sometimes more money than the kid who was. Uh, an easy choice for admissions to get into school. And so um, I, I can't even tell you there are so many success stories out there. Just in my eight and a half years, being able now to step away from Yale in 2011, you know, five years ago, just seeing those kids and what they've done and early in their careers and the success they've had, it's rewarding. And it's something that I know the coaches at Yale time when they're talking with admissions about um, the type of kid they recruit and why they want them. And it's not always just for the, uh, for the athletic piece. It's, it's to add something. And, and a lot of times it's, there's a, certainly a diversity piece to it and, and trying to get folks and get kids in that are going to make the campus community better. And um, the success stories exist. They're real. And uh, taking advantage of those when you go to sell um, the future, you know, Yale Bulldog to admissions, um, it really helps. It gives it some credence. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I know, you know, you spent eight years at Yale. I know that place really meant a lot to you. And it's been awesome to to see the, the growth of the basketball program. We see the success, like you pointed out, this past season. Uh, but that starts way back. And I think, obviously, you, you play a major role in that. And I think you should be proud of that just, just as much to see these kids as, as times have changed. Uh, doing such great things after graduation. I want to talk about Georgia Tech, though. Uh, you spent four yep. years there, two as senior associate AD. And one of the big things for you, I know, was the hiring of Brian Gregory as coach. What was your involvement in his hiring? Yeah, it, it was uh, – talk about timing again. Um, I, I got hired by Dan Radakovich, who's now – he was the AD at, at Georgia Tech at the time. He's now the AD at Clemson. And um, Dan's been a great mentor of mine. And I got hired uh, – it was late March of 2011. And uh, the week I got hired, uh, after a couple of days of accepting the job, Dan called me and said, hey, listen, you know, we go to the ACC tournament. Um, it was actually – sorry, it was early March. And we, so we go to the ACC tournament, and uh, he said, you know – well, unless we make a big run here, he said, if we lose in the first couple of rounds, we're probably, we're, we're going to, we're going to fire Paul Hewitt. And, um, you know, Paul had had, had, had a, 
I think it was a maybe a nine-year or ten-year run at Tech. National championship game in 04. And, but they had kind of fallen off in, in the last couple of years, um, nine, 2009, 10, and 11. Had a bunch of one-and-done kids, Derek Favors and Javaris Crittenden and some others. And he just hadn't been able to, to sustain the level of success he'd had early in his time there. And um, so I said, well, all right. So this is – I'm literally – I took the job on like a Tuesday. He tells me this on a Thursday. And so, uh, sure enough, they, I think, lost in the first or second round. And a uh, team with that had a Mon Shumpert on it, actually. And uh, and so they make the change. And uh, I had interviewed, part of my interview when I um, was going for the job was with Paul Hewitt. And um, I, I knew some folks that, that knew Paul. And so I got there, and we were transitioning out. And, and uh, so my first week on the job, we uh, Dan and I and a small search committee that he put together uh, donors and some folks on campus started interviewing candidates. And uh, so, I mean, talk about baptism by fire at a power five school <laughs> in an ACC basketball school. You know, I got to oversee the basketball program and here I am trying to find a head coach on my first week. And um, you now it was an interesting process because um, Brian, I, the way we got to Brian, uh, I think was a good, it was a good process. It was, it was interesting because um, Paul Hewitt's contract, um, and this is all public information because of, of tech as a state school, Paul Hewitt's contract could never go below five years. It was, a, or it was an annual rollover. So he was, and he was guaranteed the full five years if he was ever removed as a head coach. So his buyout was $7.2 million. And, and wow. so we had to bite the bullet at some point. Yeah, exactly. So, you got to swallow hard. You bite the bullet. But 7.2, when you're paying a coach that, we extended it out uh, over, I think, eight years. And so we were paying him about 900000 a year. In fact, I think Tech is still paying him through 2019. So, uh, you know, when you're paying a coach that's not coaching $900,000 a year, it, it, it did hamstring us a little bit on the value of the contract that we could get to, you know, provide to our next coach. And so – um, you know, looking, we had to look when you're doing a coaching search, you have to be obviously aspirational about who you want to hire. Um, but the reality is that, you know, and this is not, not a knock against Brian, but Brian was at an A-10 school, Dayton, that had some success and been to the tournament a couple, two or three times in his seven or eight years at, at Dayton. And they had won the NIT, uh, I think a year or two before we hired him. And, uh, they they had an average, I think, 24 wins a season his last four years there. And obviously the A-10 being in it now at UMass, is it's a great basketball league. Um, but it didn't, you know, being able to provide him with a contract, you know, we were going to pay a million to 1.2 million. And we couldn't, we had to really look closely at the, the, the candidates in that, in that pool. And Brian stood out to us. He very, very disciplined, um, his kids graduated. Uh, he recruited the right type of kids you'd want in your program. Uh, and, and to be honest uh, and to be fair, um, you know, Brian inherited a, a roster and a program that was in, in pieces. And, um, and he, did, he did a really good job in his five years of getting that to a level of respectability. And, and they, just, they just removed him from the coaching position this past offseason. But uh, I worked with Brian for four of his five years and really proud of the things that we were able to do to try to restore um, some respect in that program and um, it, we didn't it didn't always work on the, the win loss uh, column uh, but but I can tell you that our kids graduated our APR scores were good and um, we had the right kids coming through the program and I think it's now on a, on a in a position where they can have some success with you know with coach Pastner. Um, being named there, uh, you know, two months or so ago. So, um, but that that was an interesting process, Adam. It's every coaching search that I've ever been invo involved in, and I've run probably six or eight of them myself, and, and they're all different, and you can't script them. And that was certainly one where we had a we had a good pool, um, but it was a pool that um, you know Brian certainly uh, rose to the top of. And when we hired him, we were we were very happy that he was our our head coach. Curious about that that idea of coaching search, and obviously you've now hired different types of, of coaches, but specifically with basketball, I'm so curious, when that process takes place, how much do you have a list going in that you maybe keep a running list? How much is, you know, as a group, 
people are paying attention to what's going on, you know, on Twitter and what coaches are available i mean how does the whole thing start i guess is is ultimately the question yeah well the the evolution of a coaching search has absolutely um accelerated in the ways that it's done now compared to how it was done when i first got into the business 15 years ago in that social media is social media is now so prevalent and so especially twitter is is so much a part of how things break now and how, um, you know, keeping a coaching search to yourself and keeping it confidential and trying to move through it and, and, and do it in a way that you can get the right person uh, is so much harder now than it was uh, 15 years ago because everybody that has a Twitter account is a member of the media, if you think about it, you know, because they can break anything. You know, a student on campus could tweet out that he saw so-and-so walking into the Mullen Center mm-hmm. at UMass to interview for this job, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden that becomes a news source. And, you know, the, the local, you know, other kids retweet it and it gets picked up. And um, that, that wasn't true 15 years ago. And so uh, I'll give you an example, and I'll go back to basketball in a second. In hockey for us, we, I, I um, made a change in our hockey staff in, in March of this year, and we're in hockey, the best hockey conference in the country and we had finished in the bottom of hockey East the last three years and uh i had a guy who uh was a re- really good guy in our department just just hadn't had a level of success that we were comfortable with and so after four years we made a change and to answer your question about the list i i think it's true of of hockey and and football and basketball and the ones that i've done searches that i've done is you have to be aspirational about who you want to go after. And you have to go after people that, that maybe others don't think you can get. And so with our hockey search, I went after a guy who was the head coach at St. Lawrence, their division one in hockey. He had been in the NHL for 12 years as an assistant. He'd gone to two Stanley cup finals. Um, He was highly regarded in the hockey world. And he was a head coach at his alma mater at, at St. Lawrence. He's an All-American there. Uh, he had been there four years. I never coached college hockey before he got there, and he took an 11th place ECAC team and went eighth, fifth, fourth, and second in his four years. And nobody, when I started the search, thought that I could get a level of candidate like him. And I ended up doing the search, Adam, by myself. I didn't have anybody on my staff or any. Uh, external folks be part of the search process because I wanted to try to keep it as confidential as I could so that I could go after head coaches. And knowing that I was going to talk to some sitting head coaches, if their name got out there and broke, they were probably going to call me and say, hey, look, I can't, my name can't be out there. If my name gets out there, I, I can't be a candidate anymore. And knowing that that was probably the case, I decided to try to do the search on my own and it worked. His name didn't break until the day we hired him at two o'clock. We made the announcement, and you know John Butchergrass from ESPN announced it at noon. And I, by that time, I already had a signed con- signed MOU, and I was ready to go. And we had all of our graphics built and our release done, and we were ready. And it, I didn't mind that it broke a couple hours before, but if it had broken four days earlier, I can tell you he would he would still be at St. Lawrence. And so that's that's true of especially true of basketball and football searches is. Head coaches are, you know, they're keeping their eye out on, on jobs. But, um, you know, I think the Jamie Dixon to TCU, um, you know, move was, was one that kind of – now he's a TCU grad, but where TCU's basketball program is compared to Pitt, I don't think people mm-hmm. thought that that was even a lateral move, you know. And I think the tug of the heartstrings for him going back to his alma mater to try to build that program up certainly weighed in. I'm not sure if he hadn't gone to TCU that, that he would have made the move. But still, I think, you know, TCU AD Crystal Conti, unless he makes that phone call to Jamie Dixon and aspires to hire a really good, highly regarded, nationally known coach, he doesn't know if he's going to say yes or no. And so when he makes that call and he gets him interested in the job, I think that's, you know, you've got to have a list of guys. And, and for me, with every job that I look at, you know, if Derek Kellogg were to leave me tomorrow in men's basketball and go take another job or, um, I had to make a, a, a move in, in men's hoop on a new coach. I, you know, yeah, I've got a list of a handful of candidates that um, are probably high level that no one, you know, people would say, well, I don't know if you can get him at UMass. 
I would say, well, shoot, I'm going to try. I'm at least going to make a run. And then, you know, you got to list, you got to list a, 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 a deep roster and you kind of start at the top and move your way down and figure out who can, you know, who's the best fit for you and uh, who makes the most sense over the long haul. So it, I think it's, I think the list that ADs talk about having in their back pocket or in their top drawer, it, it's certainly true. And as, as you start to, figure out uh, you know if a coaching search is gonna is gonna happen i think you um you start to develop that list in earnest uh, a, l- a little bit a little bit more I, I appreciate your your candor with that and and your insight ryan i'm interested about the whole idea of the relationship between a head men's basketball coach specifically in this case and and an ad in that you're their boss I mean, they're they're reporting to you. I mean, there's other people. Obviously, you have the chancellor. You may have a board of regents, but but ultimately, you're their boss. And yet, at the same time, you want to you want to ensure their success and you want to look over what they're doing. What are the lines of communication between head coach under your administration? What what are those lines of communication like on a daily basis? Yeah, I, I try to, with every coach and, and certainly uh, with Derek Kellogg, our men's basketball coach, um, you know, I, one, I try to, I've put a sport program administrator, uh, a guy named Tom McElroy in charge of men's basketball to really help Derek and his staff on a day-to-day uh, level with scheduling and travel and to ju- just kind of put our arms around all the things that, um, you know, Derek and his guys need to be successful. And, and I try to, try to give him somebody on our staff that can be with them every day or if they need, if they need them. And certainly uh, I'm there if needed too, but um, sometimes I can't, I can't, you know, be in it in, in the grind like I was at, at Yale or Georgia tech. So um, I try to put my arms around all of our programs and figure out what are the things that make a difference? What are the things that have impact on competitive success? And so when I sat with every head coach when I got to UMass and, and, and Derek and I sat for a couple hours and I just said, Derek, what are the things that you think make a difference in this league? And certainly, uh, you know, it's no surprise to anybody. Facilities are important. And, and the fact that we had we were just completing when I got here and it, it opened in August, we just completing a $29 million practice facility that I, I would argue is probably one of the top 10 in the country. And uh, we've got a great competitive facility. It's uh, just over 20 years old, the Mullen Center, but it's still it's still in great shape, and I think is a real advantage in in recruiting for us. And um, and so you know those two things now I think are gonna they already have yielded some really positive um, dividends for you know Derek and and his staff in the recruiting process. And that's I'll be honest with you, uh, Adam. That that's that's where it begins and that's where it ends in terms of you got to bring the right kids into your program if you're going to have success, you know, play, you know, taking charter, charter airplane trips and set a commercial. Yes, that's important. And having a good uh, assistant coaching salary pool, absolutely important. And what kind of nutrition plans and meals and strength and condition, all things that are important. But if you're not bringing the right kids into your program that you can develop um, and, and that are high character, but high intensity, want to be good, want to, contribute to um you know a good culture and and want to be aspirational about their own playing careers and and trying to play at the next level um then you're not going to have a lot of success if you're not getting those kids and so for us um you know having those facilities and giving Derek some some other resources that he thought he needed um you know I think it's uh, just in this last year we signed a top 25 recruiting class and We've got five freshmen coming in this year that we think are going to really move the needle for us in the A-10 and get us back to the NCAA tournament where we were two years ago. So, uh, you know, I think that's I think that's something that um, in talking with Derek and, and I, I don't talk to him every day or see him every day uh, now that he's in another in the practice facility building. But at least a handful of times a week, um, I connect with him and uh, and we try to, you know, I try to check in and make sure he's got the things that he needs to be successful. That relationship, Adam, is an important one, and I don't look at it as I'm his boss. I look at it as we're all in this thing together. And if he's not succeeding and his program's not successful, then I'm not. I'm not successful, and, and we're in it. We're in it as a family. We're in it together. And I think you really have to take that approach with your head coaches and 
and get by and know that you've bought into what they're doing and, and the ways that you're going to try to help them be, uh, be as competitive as they can be. Okay. Well, along those lines, I know a few years ago, there's a lot of talk that, that Ben Howland was fired at UCLA in large part because the athletic department didn't like his quote style of play. Now, obviously there were other reasons for Howland's firing, you know, but he'd been to two final fours and a lot of it came down to just disagreements over the philosophy of style of play. So how involved are you in the style of play of your teams, obviously most notably basketball? Yeah, I don't, I, I will say this. I, and I obviously played college basketball. And first thing I said to Derek is, you know, Derek, I'm not, I'm not, you're our head coach. You've got, you've built a staff that you think, um, you know, can, can assist you and, and make our program better. And I don't, I, I do not get into X's and O's. I don't talk about why this inbounds play didn't work or that two, three matchup didn't work. And I might talk more broadly about just philosophies and what he's trying to do is developing his team and, and, and matchups and, and who we're playing in the league. And I may talk more broadly about those things, but even when Derek and I sat at the end of this season for three or four hours, we didn't get into well, this against Dayton did or didn't work, or this against VCU worked, and why didn't we go? I, I don't, I don't get into that. I talk more broadly about um, the ways that he's developing our kids strategically, how we're preparing ourselves for games, uh, the the adjustments we're making in games. Um, I don't get, I I don't get into the weeds, uh, and not just basketball, but some of the other sports, um, because I'm hired. If we're doing our jobs, we're hiring capable coaches. Uh, that can come in and put their stamp and mark on a program. And it's my job to have them to, to get them focused on three things, recruiting the best and the brightest young people to the university of Massachusetts, developing them in academics, athletics, and in the community. And, uh, and then on top of that, and lastly is giving them a great experience so that when they leave UMass, they're prepared for, for life after, after Amherst. And, um, and so with Derek and his staff in basketball, it's really focusing on, are we bringing the right kids into our program that are going to allow us to have success? And then how are we developing them? What are we doing every day to make them better, to make a guard, a point guard go from, you know, a, a assist the turnover ratio of, you know, two to one to three to one or four to one or getting, you know, better defensively or, you know, developing a big man so that he can be a presence in the A-10. And so those are the types of conversations I'm having. Now I, I, I'm a little bit unique. I think a lot of ADs, I think a lot of ADs get into some of the minutia of a, the style of play and the things that we're doing. I, I, I Derek's style and what we do in men's basketball, we're up and down, we're up tempo. We've got athletes. Uh, we get after you. Um, and I think that, I think that works. Uh, I think we've got to fine tune some things to have some success. Uh, I think we've got to be a little bit better defensively. And we, we talk about those types of things. I don't, I don't get into, you know, why are you playing this defense or why are we doing that, you know, set after a timeout or uh, I, I, I try to be a little bit more broad, get him to think about some things and really have ownership of, of his program. And I think that I think that allows you to have a better rapport with your coaches um, when they know that you're not looking at, uh, to be in the weeds and, and to really uh, define what they're doing day in and day out from an X and O standpoint. We've seen the success of UMass in the past, you know, um, three trips during the 1990s to the Sweet 16, two Elite Eight trips, and obviously the Final Four in 1996. Everyone remembers the Marcus Camby, Carmelo Travieso, um, that that whole era of, of UMass basketball. But even before that, we got, you know, Lou Rowe and Jim McCoy and just a proud tradition of, of basketball uh, at UMass. Um, how far away do you think the program is to being a perennial, let's say, top 20 team? Uh, perennial top 20. I mean, it's, you know, even VCU and Dayton right now at the top of our league who have had a lot of success over the last four or five years. Uh, I mean, I don't even know that they're, you know, they're, they're getting into the mm -hmm. top 25 rankings here and there, but for an A-10 school to be there perennially, uh, you, you got to go, you got to be really good. But I, I, you know, we're getting four or five teams in the tournament every year. So if you're in the top three, four, five of our league, the chances are you're, you know, you're, you're a top 35, 40 team, and that's good enough to get into the tournament. That's what we're trying to build. 
And once you get in there, you know, schools like VCU and Dayton have proven that you can go make runs. You can Dayton going to the Elite Eight a couple of years ago, VCU obviously going to the Final Four under Shaka Smart. Um, you know, I think you can even George Mason in our league, obviously 10 years earlier going to the Final Four. So you can you can make runs. Um, and so for us, it's just how do we build a team that can be playing in, in mid to late March and be playing our best basketball at that point. And I don't think we worry about being a top 20 team or a top 25 team. I want to focus on how do we get to the point where we can play for A-10 championships. And if you're playing for A-10 championships, you're going to probably be in the NIT or the NCAs every single year. And that's our goal. And I think we're close. I, I, this recruiting class that we've got and the way it complements the kids that we've got uh, coming back on our roster I think we're close, and and I think we're I think we can be a tournament team, uh, NCAA tournament team in the next year or two. Um, and I think Derek feels the same way. Um, our our league is a really really good league, and I and I didn't, you know, not being in it, being in the ACC, obviously uh, I appreciated it because uh, I'm a basketball junkie. I appreciate it from afar, but now being in the league. I can tell you we've got some of the best coaches in the country in our league. And uh, there is not uh, a night that you can take for granted when you're in this league. Um, you know, did LaSalle, uh, you know, in your hometown of Philly, um, you know, Doc John Giannini is the head coach. They finished last in our league this year. He, he, I'll be honest, I think he's one of the best coaches in our league. They just didn't mm-hmm. they had a couple of kids sitting out at transfers and things like that. But that just goes to show you, and even a guy like that, and they went, they you know, they won a couple games in the tournament two or three years ago. Um, there, you know, that's the type of it, you got to stay relevant. You got to stay in it every year in the classes of the kids that you're bringing in um, to make sure that you're, you know, you're being competitive. And it's a bear. And uh, you know, we're a little bit different um, than the rest of the schools in the league. When I I'm at league meetings and I look around, we're we're different because we've got a one A football program. We've got a hockey program that's in the best conference in the country, and no other school in our league has those two things. And so our resources that we're putting into basketball, Dayton and St. Louis and VCU and Mason and all the other ones are putting, you know, they're putting the, um, you know, they're putting resources into to basketball as their primary sport. And basketball is very important to us at UMass, but um, we've got, you know, the hockey and the football and women's basketball and some others, and we've been good in Olympic sports. Our resources are being spread out across a handful of sports that we, you know, that we want to be nationally competitive in. And so basketball is one, but, um, but, but we've got to have that in perspective. And I think that's the thing for us that I try to say to, that's why I try to say to Derek, what's really important to you? What are the things that we think we can do that will set us apart from the top you know, um, schools in our league from a men's basketball standpoint that we can do to have some success. And uh, so we've really tried to drill down on that. And he's been very good uh, uh, about thinking outside the box and making sure that we're, um, you know, we're really trying to tackle uh, the right things in his program. And um, I think it's going to, I think it's going to, I think it's going to result in in us being nationally competitive here in the next couple of years. It's pretty awesome. It's, It's, that is awesome stuff. Uh, you talked about the the coaches that are currently in the A10. I mean, uh, obviously, you know Archie Miller at, at Dayton. People talk about, but just the history of coaches there. Shaka Smart was at VCU. Uh, George Mason had Jim Laranega, and also people probably don't even remember, but uh, Rick Barnes was a George Mason head coach at at one time. Speedy Morris at LaSalle is a, a famous coach. So you know, there's been a lot of great coaches through through the uh, conference teams throughout the years, but obviously one very notable one uh, is John Calipari that was at, at UMass. You put on an opportunity to remember Calipari and the success that, that he had when he was leading the, the Minutemen, and you got some backlash for it. What's your relationship like with Calipari? And also, what was the reason behind, you know, wanting to make sure that, that people still celebrated in his successes? Yeah, it, I will tell you, um, not knowing John uh, before I got to UMass, um, yeah, I think he gets uh, – people have an impression of him that um, is, is just is not, honestly not fair. And uh, I will tell you, I am so impressed with him as a person, as a coach, 
for the level of care that he has for the guys that play for him, uh, mm-hmm. even back to his time at UMass. And that was 20 years ago that we went to the Final Four. And um, he stays in touch with every single one of his guys. If they ever need anything, um, you know, he takes care of them and, and tries to look out for them. And I think it showed when he got into the Hall of Fame last year and uh, we celebrated him uh, last winter. When he got into the Hall of Fame in September, his induction ceremony, he brought all of his former players up on stage. And there were, I don't know, 75 or 100 guys there from UMass, Memphis, uh, and Kentucky, and um, and that just shows you how many guys showed up for him. That just shows you the level of respect that his players have for him. Um, and he was hard on them, and he would say he was as hard on his UMass guys. It was his first head coaching stop. I think we hired him. He was 28 or 29 years old at the time, and um, he was just, you know, becoming uh, a head coach and understanding uh, his role in the, li- in the lives of his guys, and um, I've been so impressed with his level of engagement still with the University of Massachusetts and his philanthropic efforts. He supports us financially. He supports us with his time. He checks in. I get text messages from him when, we, when we've had a good win or when we've done something good in athletics and he sees it and he'll check in. He, he's great uh, about all of those things. We had the opportunity um, to celebrate him, to celebrate that era of UMass basketball back in the late eighties, early nineties through the mid nineties, his eight years at UMass, um, this past winter. And in December, we retired, uh, his name and put it in the rafters along with Julius Irving and Al Skinner and Lou Rowe and, uh, Trigger mm-hmm. Burke and Marcus Camby, some, you know, remarkable UMass basketball history. And, um, it was a special time for us. And I will tell you, he is absolutely beloved by the people in Amherst and the community. When they had it cranking in the mid nineties, uh, Mullen Center was the place to be, uh, more so than, than, you know, being at, at the garden in Boston or, or anywhere else. I mean, it was, they had it cranking and that place was filled and it was the toughest ticket to get in the state. And, um, that was a special time for us. And so every opportunity we get to celebrate that is important. It's important to, it's important to understand and appreciate your history. If you want to figure out where you want to go as a program. And so we talk about that a lot with our kids and John's been great to give us his time and to um, support UMass in a way. And it's not just athletics or the basketball program. He's given money to the library. Uh, he's given money to the student center on campus. John appreciates his roots and I can tell you that's not true of every head coach in our business that started out somewhere. A lot of them never, never go back or talk to that, that place or care about that place. Like John cares about UMass. And um, we're very fortunate that his first head coaching stop was at the university of Massachusetts and what he's gone on to do in his career. uh, We're extremely proud of. Yeah. And I'll I'll tell you something. He was an assistant at Pitt under Paul Evans. um, And I spoke to Don McLean about it. And, and he was recruiting Don McLean, who was one of the top prospects in the country when, when Don was at, in high school at, uh, in Simi Valley. And Don describes him as the best recruiter ever. So we're talking about a guy that I think jealousy has followed him along the way for, for a large part of his career. And I think what he's done to actually embrace the idea that, you know, these McDonald's All-Americans are looking for the best opportunity to go to the pros and has Cal Fire's talked about for a long time, the idea of, Hey, these kids can set their families up and generations to come. They can actually add wealth to their families and their communities. And he's trying to help them do that. And people take a cynical view, but the truth of the matter is that the one and done program was, you know, put in place. You have, you know, the NBA and the NCAA sort of work in, in conjunction to make, that system sort of a part of what what happened and you know the nba in actuality caused a lot of the early defections from kids because they put in the rookie salary cap and agents started saying hey kids leave as quickly as possible so you can get your rookie contract over with uh, and whether that's high school or your first year of college you need to get to the pros as soon as possible so you can get to your big contract and i just i i've always appreciated the honesty which with calipari has gone into the recruits living rooms with and said, Hey, I'm looking out for your future. And if you believe your future's in basketball, I'm going to help you achieve a, a strong future. So 
Uh, it's it's really interesting to hear the insight in, in terms of his involvement with with UMass. Ryan, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you though about about your father. Obviously, Steve was you know a monumental figure at, at Plymouth State and a monumental figure in your life. I remember how important he's always been to you during your college days and, and as you moved up along the ranks. What kind of influence has he been since you've you've taken the UMass job? He's been great. He's uh, first. He's probably my mom and dad are probably the most diehard Minutemen fans now, uh, probably more so than in anybody that uh, even went to the school or, or, or wore the uniform. I mean, they are just they they follow all of our coaches on social media. They uh, they know you know a result of a tennis match sometimes before I do if they're following it that closely. And so I just I'm I'm extremely fortunate to have people that are invested in my career and in my life and. Um, you know, they lived it as, as he was an athletic director, so they understand the 24-7 nature of it. I think that's probably the thing that I appreciate the most about um, the relationship I have with my mom and dad and, and my dad, especially as it relates to, to this business, is um, just the understanding of what it takes to, uh, you know, be competitive and be successful and how you build a good organization and how the organization and, and what the that that culture that you create uh, to have success um because i'm going to tell you adam i i think more than anything um that i've learned in my career and i started when i watched my dad is you know culture beats strategy every single day have the best strategy and the best um strategic purpose but if you don't have a good culture to support it you're not going to have uh the level of success that maybe you could if, if you had a great culture and so I think the things that I've learned from him just about his compassion, his, his drive and want um, to, to uh, build uh, the lives of young people, I think I learned that so early in my um, development, you know, just coming up through high school and, and, uh, and college that it, it's carried me. And um, since I got to UMass, I don't know that there's been, you know, specifically things that we've talked about, in, uh, you know, athletic administrative related, but more so just how to, you know, the hires that I'm making, what, what I'm looking for in those hires, how that's going to help our organization, um, you know, how we're treating people, how we're engaging with people. I think he's been, uh, he's been really supportive and been able to, um, you know, share his insight on some of those things, which I think has been great for me as, a, as an administrator, as a growing administrator. It was really cool to watch your press conference when you first took the job at UMass because – you were introduced, you said some opening remarks and got right into the thank yous of all the people who have uh, helped to basically shape who you are today. And I just yeah. thought it was such a great moment as you were giving the thank yous out in the in the middle of your introduction and, and you're going through a long list of people, be it at Yale or Georgia Tech and your family and your friends, and you're, you're getting choked up as you're, as you're giving out... Um, all these names. And what really struck me was just how emotional it all was. You could see how big the moment was for you. Um, I don't want to necessarily say a you arrived moment, but, but certainly it seemed like a, a moment of reflection. Um, how much have you had a chance to just soak it all in that, you know, Ryan Bamford, the kid that was, you know, joking around uh, next door to me at Ithaca is now the, the athletic director at UMass. Well, I, I'll tell you, every every place I've been, every interaction or experience I've had, including uh, you know living next to you at, at Lion Hall there at Ithaca, all of those things and the relationships that I've built and the friendships, you know, you and I stay in touch, and and it's great to have people that you've engaged with at some point along your career or along your time as a student or student athlete that you stay in touch with that means something to you, and every person shapes you in a different way. And I can tell you that I reflect every now and then on my career and the things that I've been a part of because it helps me make decisions about where University of Massachusetts athletic department's going in the future. And I, I would tell you, I make mistakes every day. And, um, and I, I, but I'm not afraid to make them because I know that I'm going to try to do my level best to put us in a position for sustained success competitively. And, the people that I've been a part of, um, that have been a part of my life and I've worked with closely have all shaped me, whether they've been coaches or support staff or administrators or 
um, you know, presidents or chancellors or whoever it may be that the, the and student athletes for that matter, um, they've all helped me in some way. And I've taken a piece from every place I've been and that's helped shape the things that I think are important to us uh, as an athletic department. So yeah, that press conference, one thing I learned, Adam, is uh, I should have done the thank yous at the end because I did get choked up and then it was harder <laughs> to get through the rest of the press conference. Um, but, um, but I will tell you, it was important for me to do that. It took me, um, I don't know if, if I become an AD somewhere else or if I stay at UMass for the rest of my career, if I, any chance I get to say thank you to the people um, that have really shaped uh, me as an administrator and as a person, I think it's important to do that. And it's important to, important to appreciate um, you know, where I've come from so I can understand where I want to go. Along those lines, the last question I have for you is um, what advice would you give young people who are interested in getting into the athletic department industry? Any young person that reaches out to me, um, I try to have my assistant set up a, if they want to have a phone call or want, if they're on campus, we have a great sport management program at UMass. And so I get kids on campus that want to come sit with me. I, I try to fit them into my schedule, either with a call or uh, a face-to-face for e- at least 15 or 20 minutes to try to, uh, help a young person. I had a lot of people who did that for me coming up, and I think it's important to do that uh, for people who want to be in our business. Um, the three things that I tell, whether any young administrator that I speak with, are three things that have allowed me to be successful. And I, and I don't think there any, there's any magic to it, but I I think having a really high motor and and a great work ethic. Um, is needed in our business because there are times where I'm putting in 75 or 80 hours a week. And I did it even when I was an intern or when I was an assistant AD, um, you know, building um, yourself as somebody who's a doer, uh, who has that level of, uh, of work ethic uh, that people want to be around you and people will know that you're going to get stuff done. I think uh, goes a long way. I think the second thing is being highly organized and being deliberate about the things that you're doing and, making sure that you've got a level of organization that's going to allow you to have personal success in the organization that you're in to have success. And so I think being uh, detail-oriented and, and organized is, is really important. And then I think the third thing, and arguably the most important thing in our business especially, is, is being a great interpersonal communicator and, and being somebody that can write well, somebody who can speak well, who has great personal relationships with people, who makes the people around them better and allows people around them to make them better, um, who doesn't take themselves too seriously and uh, can really build relationships with people around them um, that are going to be substantive and are going to add value to to what we do as an organization. And so I I think those are the things, those three things, the work ethic, the organizational um, detail-oriented nature, and then just uh, being a great communicator. For for me, those are things that I think set people apart. The successful people that I've seen in our business and in coaching, I think do those th- three things um, well, and, and they've made them hallmarks of, uh, uh, you know, of, of their success. Well, I know that there's a lot of young people out there that are going to appreciate those those remarks. I certainly appreciate having you on Ryan, I got to tell you, I'm incredibly proud of you. I, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I'm excited about what's next for UMass. And I've become a huge UMass fan. I know people there are very excited. I'm probably just as excited as, as some of the alums. So congrats on your success. And um, thanks again for joining me. Of course, man. I appreciate those, those comments and uh, very proud of where I've come from and the relationship I've built with people in that. Uh, you're certainly included on that list. And I appreciate your kind words. And Look forward to staying in touch, and I'm glad you're a UMass fan now. That's uh, that's a good thing. We need more guys like you. Thanks again to Ryan Bamford. Again, you can follow him on Twitter, at UMassADBamford. You would be shocked at how much he's interacting with uh, people who follow him on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter, at NaismithLives. I'm Adam Stanko. This is the Breakpoint Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you next time. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. 
Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store.